<laughs> I don't think mine's gonna be a pop top. It's a twisty. Probably. Those type usually are. Seagram. Seagram. Seagram's escapes. Woo. Did they get on the plane to Lisbon? Is that where they um, escaped to? I feel like we're going to a tropical island. I don't know if Lisbon is tropical. It's in Portugal. Well, that doesn't mean that it's on the beach. There's a beach in the photo on my drink, okay? I need to be on the literal beach. <laughs> Tried to read up a little bit about Lisbon and uh, didn't retain any of it. So. Well, you're useless. Just to figure out where it was. Because <laughs> I, I got it confused with Lebanon. I was like, I don't know where, where it is, <laughs> to be honest. I just know it's on route to trying to get to America, in mm -hmm. theory. Let's see if this tastes anything like an actual margarita. Let's see. No. no. It tastes like a Sprite, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen in her case of bitch beers. Welcome to the Nightmare Box. <laughs> Presenting mistakes were made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, what's that? Is it a green t-shirt? Kristen Bloom. I had like a brief moment whenever I got to work this morning. Where I was like, holy shit, I actually wore green on St. Patty's. St. Patty's <laughs> is tomorrow. It's tomorrow. And we're here to bring you our still unnamed edition of that thing. And we're talking... Better than Two Star <laughs> better Tuesday. Better than Two Star Tuesday. One of the... Okay, you can't eat your bone literally right behind me, because you are on mic. Go. That. <laughs> that, uh, he has no fucks to give. What is arguably the, <laughs> one of the greatest films of all time, 1942's Casablanca. Is this the oldest film that we've watched together? Probably, yeah. I think so. Because Psycho was made in like the... 60s? 60s? Yeah, I yeah. was like, was it the 60s? <laughs> I was going to say 50s, and then I was like, I feel like it was the 60s. Yeah. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and it's... Uh, Other than Birth of a Nation, which is your favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, Kristen Blue's <laughs> favorite your, film, your Birth favorite of a Nation. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, it widely regarded as one of the classics. One of the interesting facts that I did retain that I did not write down is this has uh, six quotes on the AFI's, like, 100 Greatest Quotes of All Time, making it the only film with that number. Like, their Wizard of Oz is, like, right behind it and one other really big film. But most films only get one or two, like most of your classics, get like one or two uh, lines of dialogue on that list, and this one has six of them. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised we couldn't remember. Well, you had never seen this, <laughs> I guess you wouldn't remember. But uh, The big line. Yeah, we couldn't remember any at all pre-watching it, and then while we were watching it, we were like, oh yeah, That's that where one. that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you want to kick it off? Uh, we'll do the usual rundown, but again, this is a movie from the 40s, so I did not write down other work any of these people had been in because yeah. they were working in the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was directed by Michael Curtis, yeah. produced by Hal B. Wallace, and we did watch some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And um, Every time I think of producers, I think of the people who just fund it and ultimately yeah. kill your joy because they make <laughs> the final decisions, but they're not really all that involved in the work. And the behind-the-scenes stuff that we watched made it seem like Hal was a lot more hands-on and like a lot more involved in like the yeah. creative process, so interesting. Um, the screenplay was by uh, the Epstein Twins. Oh my god. Any Julius, relation? 
<laughs> we never we never figured out where his fortune came from. <laughs> Julius J. Epstein and Philip G. Epstein, and also Howard Koch. Mm-hmm. Um, this was based on an unproduced play by Murray Bennett and I guess Joan Allison. There's not an and in between. Um, it was called Everybody Comes to Ricks. Fuck yeah. Casablanca, I think, is a better title. Casablanca is like <laughs> one of the greatest tile, titles in film history. It's just got that romanticism built into the name of the city. It's um, awesome. They almost named it Lisbon because it was supposed to be set in Lisbon. They were not taking a plane to Lisbon. And like one of the reviews that I read, it was like that would have been such a worse title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Casablanca does have a romantic mm-hmm. like, vibe to it. Uh, music by Max Steiner, who uh, we learned while we were watching the special features, did the soundtrack to King Kong. Yeah. Like the original. <laughs> the old school black and white. Cinematography was by author Edison. Arthur. Arthur. Arthur Edison. <laughs> um, edited by Owen Marks. And this was back when you had to legit cut and paste. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, produced by Warner Brothers. Distributed by Warner Brothers. Um, the budget was 878000 which is apparently equivalent to $13 million <laughs> in 2019. Uh, so I guess maybe the box office must be modern day then. Like current box office because you and I have discussed that yeah. before. Um, box office three point seven to six point nine million. What? Three point seven to six point nine. Like it's a range. Oh, oh. They're oh. saying they've made somewhere between three point seven. I thought you said. 6. I, I, I thought you were adding multiple decimal points. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which that's a pretty wide range. I don't know why their numbers are so. So wonky. It's got footnotes, but I don't know where the notes are, so I'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna try to figure that out. Maybe that was the re-release. Maybe the 6.9 was when they re-released yeah. it. Yeah. Um, cast. The cast. Um, this first guy you might have heard a thing or two about. He plays Rick Blaine, and his name is motherfucking Humphrey Bogart. Again, I don't have uh, stuff they've worked in because he's a legend. They're old as fuck. <laughs> um, I do have a couple of fun facts about. The three main ones, though. Oh, no. uh, Humphrey was born in 1899. Yeah. Which is wild to think about. And he died in his late 50s. Yeah. But he was born in the 1800s. <laughs> which is weird to think about. Like, that's a movie we still watch. He yeah. wasn't even born in the same century. Does not fuck around. And then we got Ingrid Bergman plays Ilsa Lund. Uh, she has tied with Meryl Streep. For the second most won Oscars. Wow. Uh, the only person ahead of the two of them is Katherine Hepburn. No shit. Yeah. So I'm... this lady has held her crown for a long time. So we need to figure out what other movies she's been in. Because I've never even heard of her. So that, she has to be fucking incredible. Yeah. And um, I didn't. I, I sort of skimmed her work. I didn't yeah. really know or recognize any of it. So I'm assuming it was just back in the day when it was like. Hollywood starlets, mm-hmm. like, star in all the current films. Yeah, so. it's like how like, Marilyn Monroe is in, like, 50 movies you've never yeah. heard of. <laughs> not not trying to uh, discredit her, because her acting in this was good. Uh, I think back then, you were kind of set up to succeed, because you were, like, a contract star, yeah. and you starred in all the movies. You have to be beautiful, and you have to be able to not stutter in front of Humphrey Bogart. You have to be about this big around. Yeah. And then you've got Paul Henry plays Victor Laszlo. 
Uh, apparently, in real life, he was as vocal of an activist as his character was. He oh, was shit. very staunchly anti-McCarthyism, and he was blacklisted as a communist sympathizer. Fuck yeah. That's a really interesting period of film that we should dive into on one of our Patreon episodes that we eventually get to, is McCarthyism and how it affected film. Mm-hmm. And, uh... If anybody even claimed you were a commie, yeah, life was bad. Apparently, uh, I can't remember. Considering the state of Los Angeles, it's actually <laughs> rather surprising. <laughs> I can't remember um, if it said he like started a production company or started directing after that or whatever. But apparently, that didn't crush his career like it did most people. He didn't mm-hmm. make a comeback. But uh, Wikipedia just has an interesting little aside to him, which I thought was funny. Apparently he did not get along with his two fellow actors. Uh, he considered Bogart a mediocre actor, and uh, Ingrid Bergman uh, said he was a prima donna. <laughs> they did not like him. No, we've got Claude Rains as Captain Raynal. Uh, that's the police captain character who's super corrupt and makes people do... Strange Not things. Good things for a pass out of town. Very interesting that they showed that, and we can get into that later on in the episode. Uh, Conrad Witt, I think that's how you say it. He played the German. I'm giving it to him. Uh, Major Heinrich Strasser. Uh, he was our big bad guy. Um, interestingly, this is actually probably the most interesting fact about anyone, and this is just right here on the Wikipedia, so I did no research for this. Uh, He's a refugee German actor who fled the Nazis with his Jewish wife, but was frequently cast as a Nazi in American films. Interesting. So he himself had personally fled persecution, but he gets cast as Nazis. He was the highest paid member of this film, even though he's got what they call second billing. He wasn't Hmm. a main cast member, but he got paid the most. That's interesting. They made more than Humphrey. Mm-hmm. That's fucking wild. Yeah, one of the interesting facts that I did retain, most of the cast um, for the big choir sequence where they have the battle of the songs between the Nazis and the French that have fled, um, most of the people that were singing the French anthem uh, and also that were playing the Germans were refugees uh, from Germany that had fled because of the rise of the Nazis. And they they were saying if you look closely, you can actually see that some of the people singing the song are crying, like in the actual film, mm. when they sing La Marie or La whatever the fuck that song is. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> <La Marseille. laughs> apparently, uh, pretty much all of the extras, especially, were um, foreign or refugees. Mm-hmm. Like I, I never realized that. I think because if you want to go ahead and. Name the next character. Yeah, I'm not trying to pull off the road on you. No, I know, but it's relevant. Uh, Dooley Wilson plays Sam. He's our African-American piano player Mm -hmm. that's good friends with Rick. Um, I remembered him being basically the only person of color in this movie, and I think it's because he's the only person of color they really, like, prominently focus on. But yeah, and it's hard to tell when someone's light-skinned in a black-and-white mm-hmm. movie whether or not they're foreign, unless they have kind of distinct features, so that doesn't help either. But he might be the only black dude in this movie, but yeah, the movie is predominantly made up of uh, refugees and people that are from uh, mm-hmm. other places, and apparently... Uh, Dooley Wilson was one of the few American-born members that was cast to act in the movie. So, <laughs> so it's uh, mostly just, yeah, that's yeah. fucking incredible. So, yeah, ironically, you see it and you go, oh, there's the token black guy. <laughs> you know. 2021. Racism. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, actually, he was one of the only people in this movie that was from America. <laughs> 
Fuck yeah. So those are the main ones that we're going to go over. I know that there's quite a few others that are integral to the plot, but yeah, we'll stick with those guys. Yeah, because there's quite a few people in this. There are a lot of like little cute characters that yeah. like help Rick run the bar, but these are the people that are kind of essential speaking to the story. Of, speaking of the bartender in Rick's, the guy that's there, I learned that the only reason he's in the movie is because in real life he was Humphrey Bogart's drinking buddy, and Humphrey was pretty much like, I'm going to get you in the pictures, kid. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, synopsis. After you, my love. Uh, because <laughs> I, I butchered this when we talked about talking <laughs> about this movie, because I did not remember what this movie was about <laughs> at all, apparently. Um, <laughs> so... Here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> so, Rick is a expat. I don't know if we ever really, like, outright say why he can't go back to America, but, yeah. um, he lives in Casablanca, runs a bar, apparently is, uh... Had a few run-ins where he's done some kind of refugee-esque stuff, like yeah. helped smuggle guns and... Fought um, on the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, now he runs a bar in Casablanca and tries to be low-key and... He's not sticking his neck out for nobody. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of self-serving, just trying to get by, because he has spent what we get the picture of anyway, a good chunk of his life on the run, so he's just trying yeah. to like settle down and hunker down. Um, and randomly out of nowhere, his old flame comes wandering back into his <laughs> gin joint. Uh, and we kind of develop a bit of backstory as the movie goes on. Turns out, uh, him and I think it's Elsa is what they keep calling her, mm-hmm. even though it definitely looks like it's Elsa. Maybe it is Elsa. I don't know. But anyway, um, we find out they met each other in Paris, fell in love, had a little entanglement, and mm-hmm. they were supposed to run away on the train together and get married. He gets on the train because they're fleeing the Germans coming into France. Yeah. Um, she does not show up, gives mm-hmm. him a letter saying she's not coming. Uh, he doesn't find out until she shows up in Casablanca that apparently she was married <laughs> already. <laughs> to uh, Victor Laszlo, who mm-hmm. had been captured and thrown in a concentration camp. She thought he was dead, supposedly. I don't know. I believe her. <laughs> um, she finds out conveniently right before they're going to leave town together that Laszlo's still alive, decides to stay in France, stay with him, and Laszlo's the leader of all the refugees yeah. and um, is currently stuck in Casablanca trying to get a pass to get to Lisbon so he can get to America mm-hmm. to continue the fight against the Germans. Um, and then Rick has to decide, is he going to help his ex-lover? Is he? It's a literal gonna, case of, if you love it, let it go. <laughs> going to kill the dude who, in his opinion, stole his lover. Where do we go from here? So, yeah. And then there's the plane to Lisbon. Yeah. And Rick's not on it. Spoiler alert! It came out in 1943. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the plot. Fuck yeah! And what do you think about it? It's again. Um, I, I know that this was my first viewing of Casablanca. Your second or third, maybe? Second. Yeah. Um, and I watched it while I was working at the hospital that I used to work at mm-hmm. the first time. So I don't know that I was really wholly paying attention to it the first time, but. I remember even then thinking it was better than I expected it to be because I, I and maybe this is the only time I've been truly disappointed. I do not like Birth of a Nation. Let's just go ahead and get that one out of the way. Brett likes to tease me. It was a horrible movie. 
Um, I had to watch it for film Not studies. Not seen it. I'm holding off my critique. I had to watch it for a film <laughs> studies class. Um, but I also had to watch Citizen Kane for my film studies class, and I just did not like Citizen Kane. Like yeah. I was so bored by it. Um, and I don't know, maybe a few years removed from the last time I watched it, I might revisit it and be like, oh, this Without is fantastic. Without the pressure of the college class. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hated it, though. And so, like, I think I kind of expected to not like Casablanca. Um, and I remember the first viewing kind of being like, oh, it's better than I thought it would be. And this viewing being like, it's funnier than I remember mm-hmm. it being. Like, it's actually a... You know, it's got its quirks, but it's it's a decent movie. Yeah. How about you? I, I, I'm not going to lie. I expected to hate this. I was doing this because I thought it would make you happy if we watched an old romance film. And I'd heard that it was the greatest romantic film ever made. So I was like, right, let's fucking do this. And I loved it within the first five minutes. I, I, I was completely captured by the character. It helped me understand what we talked about on the last episode as far as conflict, which I want to get into. Um it, it gave me like a physical model for what that guy was talking about and probably why he used it as an example, you know, <laughs> looking back. So I've got to revisit that whole section of my book that I'm reading. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, parts of it are dated, but it's mainly like the shooting <laughs> is ridiculous. Um, Nobody bleeds when they get shot. It's so strange. Yeah, the, the dialogue doesn't feel that dated to me. Uh, the accents, of course, and you know certain things like that. But I was pulled into it because it it is 20, 30 years ahead of its time. Like <laughs> it's missing some of the elements that are going to come right behind it. But I could easily see how this changed film at a certain point. You know, there's mm-hmm. pre-Casablanca and post-Casablanca in my head now. So, I'm, yeah, I, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I, I, I'd definitely watch it again. I find it interesting that the people making it thought it wasn't going to do yeah. well. Yeah, and it didn't initially do well, if I remember correctly. Like people, no, they said it took off because the landing at Casablanca happened as they were launching the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they rushed it to get it there. But the New York Times hated it. Like They were like, oh, it's a mediocre Humphrey Bogart's last movie was better. <laughs> oh, Humphrey. Um, shall we get into our topics? Though? I'm down. So. Um, oh, did we get the ratings? Because I know one off the top oh, of my shoot. head. No. Rotten Tomatoes, 99%. The highest rated film we've ever watched. I feel like we've... I don't think we've ever done a 100. I think we've done a 97. No, that's right. We've done zeros before. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I don't even think about it when we're not doing two-star films, I guess. Um, No, I don't have the ratings, though. I just know that it's 99% on Rotten Tom. Because I checked that out earlier today, and I was like, holy fuck. That might be a bit generous, honestly. Well, it and... um, it and Citizen Kane go back and forth year by year on the AFI lists. So it's it, like, if it's not the number one, it's the number two, you know. And Citizen Kane wasn't that good. I've never seen it. <laughs> Don't blame me for America's love of that film about a capitalist it wasn't, who it wasn't that good. <laughs> dies without a sense of self, if I haven't understood. <laughs> Fucking Red Rose or whatever. <laughs> Red Wagon. Rosebud. Rosebud. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, I, there's a lot of good things to say about this movie, for sure. I don't have too many complaints, but I, I think a huge amount of credit has to be given to the writers. Mm-hmm. I, I, 
obviously haven't read the original plays. So I don't know how much they changed from the original play, but um, yeah, for I didn't like I completely forgot that it was about Germans uh, occupying territories or about the yeah. war or anything. Like I didn't even remember that because um, I don't know. I guess you think of when you think of war movies, like really dark, lots of people dying, like everything's horrible. And I and, expected a level of that after I realized that that was because of the Nazis that they were trying to get out of Casablanca. I was expecting some sort of you know big heroic shootout, and it just comes down to Humphrey plugging one of those bastards on the runway. <laughs> and I think because they're in um, territory that's still not technically occupied. Um, Maybe that's why I thought he specifically was just in trouble with the police. Like, I remembered it being yeah. like he was in trouble with the cops because the uh, Renault is the captain of the French police there in mm-hmm. uh, Casablanca, and that's the main character we kind of see him interacting with. So, like, for some reason, I remembered it being he had gotten in some kind of trouble with the law, and that's yeah. why he was trying to get out of town. So, um, yeah, I completely forgot it even had anything to do with the war at all. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not good on my part because it's pretty obvious it has right off the bat. That's the explanation <laughs> in the title card. The <laughs> um, but I, I think it's a credit to the writing. Like this is, uh, and not like a dark comedy. This is like a legitimately funny movie for how dark of a subject yeah. matter it is. My can I my favorite joke because I still remember it is when they're talking in the. I mean, most of the films in the bar, but they're talking in the bar about like where are you from subjects and he goes well where are you from the dude's like i you know i'm from france or i'm from blah 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 and uh they ask humphrey and he goes i'm a drunkard and then his buddy says that pretty much gives him he's a world traveler or some shit like that his nationality is (laughs) i'm a drunkard yeah no i like the bit where they're going to close the bar down and he's like you don't have any reason to close me down why are you closing me he's like i'm shocked i'm appalled that there's gambling here and somebody walks up and goes captain your winnings (laughs) he just sticks him in his pocket like really clever and not like Spaceball or yeah Spaceballs I almost said Spaceballs are you comparing Casablanca no, to Spaceballs but, but I'm just saying like Spaceballs is like a movie where there's like quippy lines yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're really ridiculous and over the top and this is done in like a way where it's like really obvious they're poking mm-hmm. fun but it's like subtle and flows with the story it's very English yeah so you don't sort of a way. you don't feel like you're watching like a slapstick comedy mm-hmm. or whatever and um you can appreciate like how serious the situation is that they're all in, yeah. but at the same time, you don't feel like, oh my god, we're you, all gonna die. It makes you feel kind of like the way that um, that sitcom where they all hang out at the bar. What's the name of that sitcom? Cheers. Um, kind of like that, where the, the 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 atmosphere of the film makes you feel like one of the bar patrons, and so you get the jokes and you get this dark side, but it gives such a levity to literally World War Two. As it's going down. This wasn't made like a year after World War II. This is like around the time the D-Day invasion, (laughs) you know, occurred. So it's, yeah, it's in real time making fun of the things that are happening in real time. It's like Charlie Chaplin with the dictator. (laughs) It's it's incredible foresight on, on the act of the writers, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Why'd you look so sad? I was hoping you'd cut me off at some point in there and help me fucking keep swinging on vines. I'm not a writer. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I do like that. It's like our equivalent is Jarhead, right? Like fucking we were going into Iraq and then they made this the platoon. Do not compare Jarhead to Platoon ever. Platoon's one of the greatest films that's ever been made. But it's like our, our version of events is we did Jarhead to explain to the American public what it's like to go to Iraq. And <laughs> Jarhead is not Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like that. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of really dark stuff happening in this movie. Like, you do see um, the people kind of riding ahead of where the Germans are at, warning people, like, hey, they're coming. This is what's expected of you whenever they come into town. Like, yeah. these are the rules you need to follow. And then you hear, like, cannon fire. And then casablanca there's like a lot of really dark seedy stuff going on for people mm-hmm. that are so desperate to get out of town you have the one i think she was bulgarian if i'm remembering yeah. right or belgium um but there was the young couple that was like trying to get away because things were so bad in their home country mm-hmm. and the captain which i'm kind of surprised they put that in this movie mm-hmm. um apparently it was more overt originally and they got in trouble and had to tone it down but um the captain is propositioning young women that he finds attractive and saying basically if you fuck me I'll get you a pass out of here so oddly Epstein-esque <laughs> on behalf of the writers <laughs> um, and obviously the gambling at Rick's is rigged so that the house wins um, and you have this cute little moment where Rick helps the young mm-hmm. husband get enough money so that they can buy their passes so his wife doesn't have to sleep with the captain yeah put it all on 22 did you hear me (laughs) (laughs) yeah you have all these really dark things happening and like the people literally like standing outside and watching the plane fly by and be like maybe we'll get to catch the next one and there's like such heavy topics in this and then yeah you have these like light-hearted moments where you have these kind of endearing characters Mm -hmm. that kind of feel like they're a family because They've all been displaced, so they all know how that feels. Like the scene, why do I keep trying to say in the bar? The whole fucking thing's in the bar. But <laughs> like the scene where they're singing, the the Nazis try to sing their song, and they mm-hmm. get washed out by the expats who are just, you know, fucking screaming this beautiful French song. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no, you haven't occupied here yet, motherfucker. <laughs> and I find it interesting, too, which I, I don't know how intentional that was, but when we first meet... Rick's character, he's sitting alone playing chess, and then a good chunk of the movie feels a bit like him playing chess around these other characters, Mm -hmm. because you have that moment, um, well, actually multiple moments where he's confronted about the fact that they know that he has the papers, and they're like, look, just stay in line, you know, or else, and then you kind of see the other characters in the movie uh, like having to work their way around their opponents so it's almost like the whole movie is a bit of a chess match mm-hmm. like that's an interesting way of putting it well you have that I, and I think the strongest example is you have that moment um, where Laszlo and Ilsa are at the prefect's office and they're like oh yeah you really wanted to talk to that one guy and he's like oh yeah can I see him and he's like oh he died we haven't decided if it was suicide yet or not you know and yeah. like it's kind of like oh shit like they can make me disappear and it's like we've got to be careful about what especially we're doing. for that character who's just survived a concentration camp mm-hmm. seeing the germans chasing him more or less yeah so it's it's um it's interesting how light-hearted they managed to keep how heavy a lot of this stuff is yeah like i never at any point was like oh god you know 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I fucking, I loved it. Uh, my excitement when I went like this early, <laughs> uh, you can't see me, but I did a thing with my hands, uh, <laughs> was um, they found, like, decades after the film came out, I can't remember what year exactly, a, um, a chessboard that had a letter stuck in it, right? <clears throat> and it was that chessboard from Casablanca. They found it, it was like some document guy came across this letter from Humphrey Bogart that had been tucked inside of a chessboard. And it turns out that that was not intentional, the chessboard thing at the beginning that might have gotten written in or that might have been a part of his character and this is how he you know was becoming the character uh, he was playing a chess game by mail with one of his friends so like he would say i'm moving e4 to e9 or whatever however you talk chess you know in the mail and then he would write his buddy a letter by the way here's my chess move for the week and then he'd send the letter off and then his buddy would send him the letter all right, well, I see. That's the slowest chess match yeah. ever. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it, it's pretty common in, like, jail-type situations. Like, guys will throw kites down the way to play chess with each other without being in the room. But he was literally doing it at the time. So, like, he was probably just hanging out, playing chess with his buddy via the mail, folds his little letter up, sticks it in his chessboard, and then it pops up, like, 40 years later <laughs> at a pawn shop. Speaking of stuff like that, apparently... Um the line, here's looking at you, kid, uh, I don't know if I have it in here, um, was not originally a part of the script either. I think he was, like, going over, like, rules for, like, gambling and stuff. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he was teaching uh, Ingrid, the main actress, like, stuff just, like, on the side. Which one he takes. <laughs> I, I think it was related to gambling rules, and it was a thing he kept saying to her or whatever. <laughs> So it ended up being a line in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking really interesting. He seems like he was a really cool dude. <laughs> People were like, "Ah, hey, he was a drunk," you know. <laughs> <laughs> he has a face where he looks like he'd be a jerk, though. He yeah, doesn't yeah, have an approachable yeah. face. <laughs> I, I learned that nobody really knows what happened with his scar. Um, the consensus nowadays is that he was in the navy for a stint. Um, I believe between the wars and um, no that wouldn't have been because the the Hollywood line was that his ship had got shelled and he got a shrapnel wound across his face Um, but the one that people buy into more now is that he was taking a prisoner off of the ship got one of the handcuffs off and the guy turned around and punched him and lacerated his lip and he held during his lifetime that it was a childhood injury and that the damn doctor you know, made it worse instead of better. So, like, there's four or five different stories I regarding. I didn't notice that he had a scar. I didn't, and I tried Googling the uh, fucking. Uh, like, there's a tiny yeah, photo of him right there, here. There's a scar on his lip that he was apparently super, you know, upset about, and that's why he has that voice. He has a slight speech impediment. Hmm. That is kind of like a cleft palate type situation, but it made his voice more beautiful because he got his lips split open, so he talked a different way. I was gonna say, I didn't. Yeah. Like, notice that he talked... I mean, he's he's got a that old Hollywood way of talking, but... You see what I'm doing, kid? <laughs> he's looking at you. You see? <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about what we learned about conflict. Mm. This was my favorite part, because I read that chapter in the book, and um, it's the... I don't have it in front of me. I'm going to forget the guy's fucking name immediately, but listen Truby. to the last... Truby. Um, 22 Steps, The Anatomy of Story, I believe is the name of the book. 
And he has this whole section on four-way conflict that I couldn't wrap my head around because I, I couldn't visualize it. And he was using Casablanca that I'd never seen and Tootsie that I've never seen to explain this. So I couldn't even like visualize. Most of the time he uses The Godfather, and that's really easy for me because I've seen that 3,000 times. I've seen The Godfather and Goodfellas more than I've seen any other movie that's ever been made. But I couldn't conceptualize this idea of four-way conflict, which if you can envision a box uh, made of arrows pointing at the dots across from it, and then... An X the, in the middle. Yeah, and then the arrows cross in, in, in an X so that like your uh, top left meets bottom right, and you know top right meets bottom left, and so you've got all this interspersed conflict. I couldn't wrap my head around anything that I've ever enjoyed <laughs> having that structure. And I was like, well, where the fuck is he getting this? And how is that pulled off? I feel like it would and be I a saw bit this. heavy for most films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know that I love like that 720 view of thinking about story and you know, flesh it out from all angles. This film, I don't know... If it's the first time I've seen it, now I guess when I watch other films, I'll look for it more. But this film was the perfect example of four-way conflict. Because you've got Rick and Ilsa, you know, sitting across from each other. You've got She's the, openly flirting, even though her husband doesn't know she had an affair. Exactly. And then you drop down. So Rick is top left, Ilsa's top right. And then you drop down, and you've got Laszlo. And he has direct conflict with Rick. And then what is Laszlo afraid of? The Germans. The Germans are now below li- below Rick, bottom left. And they are, like, what would Ilsa have to do to the captain <laughs> to get the papers without Rick? And so you wind up with this perfect box of interspersed conflict. And that drives the entirety of the plot. It, it's so compelling. And the way that it closes out is like, the perfect example of the self-revelation for Rick. Mm-hmm. He, his life's a disaster. I don't stick my neck out for nobody because he feels that he's been betrayed by Ilsa. At the same time, his bar has become a refuge for people like Laszlo. So there's a forgiveness aspect mm-hmm. from the main character as well as a conflict aspect from the main character all the way around. He starts off easy working with the Nazis, <laughs> you know, don't bother me, I won't bother you, and by the end he's gunning one down on the runway to help his ex-lover escape with her husband. It's fucking mind-blowing. It was a, a master class in conflict. Yeah. I, don't, I think it would be, honestly, too much for most movies. I think it works, and I'm not saying this is the only movie that's ever pulled it off, but I think it works for this movie because... In my opinion, anyway, each character has very specific purposes or desires at the very least. So, um, you know, we have that kind of unexpected desire between Rick and Ilsa, where they mm-hmm. both of them start off not really, like, expecting to want the other again. And then um, kind of their main desires, like Ilsa and Laszlo want to get to America, Rick just wants to survive, you have the Germans who specifically want to capture these people so like, I think the ongoing conflict and the development of the characters throughout the movie um, works so well because they all have very distinct desires, very distinct personalities and even whenever Rick 
like starts to kind of change as the story goes mm. on. It's not out of character. Like it's very specifically because he's starting to feel these feelings for yeah. his ex again. It's like he's become a frozen wall and then that wall starts melting and he mm. has to make this decision as to who he's going to be. Is he going to stick his neck out? <laughs> and like he used to, and we established that too. And I think that's important. He used to be a character who was a bit more willing to stick his neck yeah. out. And then he gets to Casablanca and he's kind of a man at the end of his road. And he's like, I just want to live yeah. my life. The you wars know? <laughs> haven't stopped. My love is not returned. Fuck this. I just want to sit here and play chess via the mail. Yeah. And I feel like to some extent, um, which I think is part of the reason he ends up letting Laszlo get on the plane. I don't think it's wholly just because he wants Ilsa to be happy I think he kind of rediscovers a bit of purpose himself because you kind of have that moment when they do the dueling singing in the bar Mm -hmm. where Laszlo's the one who tells Rick's band (laughs) to start playing and then they look to Rick and Rick like nods at him funny side (laughs) note uh, that day they called Humphrey Bogart in he wasn't supposed to be in the studio they said stand over there nod in that direction he walked in he nodded in that direction they said you can go back home now Humphrey Uh, and he was pissed that they called him in but it was for that scene he wasn't in the room for that which I I think it's important (laughs) he wasn't supposed to be on set that day (laughs) I think it's important to have that scene and that was definitely a good choice because you kind of have this turning point where I think Rick's character kind of begrudgingly starts to respect Laszlo and mm. kind of starts to realize he needs to be doing more. So, yeah, it, it is an interesting... Like, Laszlo's still that part of Rick that was running guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of have that, which is weird because they both know he fucked Laszlo's wife, but you kind of have that <laughs> moment at the end where... Laszlo's like welcome back to the fight, you know, and like appreciates yeah. him like as a comrade versus in relation to the issues they've been having. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Which I, adds another layer. <laughs> this is sixteen levels of conflict. There's communism versus the Nazis versus. My only complaint would be Ilsa. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Because her character. Um, doesn't seem to really have much motivation other than wanting to be protected yeah like personally fulfilled like she doesn't seem to have a real purpose um and i think she's the weak link in this chain of conflicts that we've got going on um (laughs) and i did read so i guess to some extent that's not really the actress's fault because you and i had watched the special features and they Mm -hmm. were saying in the special features they didn't know who she was going to end up with or how the movie was going to end until pretty much the very end of the movie. And yeah, I did... so they told her basically to pretend to love each man the same. Yeah, 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 so I read she went and talked to either the director or producer or someone and was like, who am I supposed to love more? And he was like, love them the same? <laughs> um, so I, you can't, I guess, wholly blame that on the actress and, you know, the, that's the writing too, obviously. But, yeah, I... For this having been a more progressive movie, would have liked to have seen a stronger female character. Like, the only real moment you have from her is when she grabs the gun and points it at Rick. And yeah. it doesn't come across as strong. It comes across as irrational. Just she's like, don't make me papers. do this. And yeah. then she puts the gun down. She's like, ah. <laughs> Can know? I give you some pushback on that? Mm-hmm. Um, I... I wish that I would have seen more of a love connection between her and Rick or between her and Laszlo and more of a lust 
on the other side so that we would have got that differentiation. Um, but this buildup that occurs to the climax on the runway for the plane to Lisbon, he has one of the most beautiful lines of the film. You're not going to regret it today, but you'll regret it tomorrow or the next day or later on, you know. But eventually, you know, too soon, you'll regret if you stay here instead of getting on that plane. Uh, I wish that there would have been a stronger connection for different reasons between the two men. But she's literally choosing the now that she fell in love with, with Rick while her husband was in the concentration camps, right? Mm-hmm. So she's married to a man who was that Rick. And she's lusting for the man who's the settled down version of her current husband so I think there is a layer there but it just wasn't it doesn't come through as aggressively as it needed See, and to. I, I don't even get that sense from it and I think part of it is the way that the story is depicted visually like you see mm-hmm. romance scenes pretty much only between her and Rick like we get that flashback yeah. of them in Paris and them doing these really romantic things and them kissing. Play it, Sam. (laughs) She can handle it, so can I. Yeah, and yeah, they have a song that's theirs and you see them kissing, you see them dancing, you see them falling in love and all we get of her and her husband is them on the run and Rick tells her he loves her and she tells Rick she loves him. Her husband tells her he loves her. She never says I love you back to her husband. So we don't ever Mm. at any point in the story in my opinion, get as strong of a love connection between her and her husband. To me, it almost feels like she's with her husband because he can provide more for her. Like, he's more well-to-do. He's more famous. Like, he can get things done. He Mm -hmm. won't ditch her if she's sick and can't take care of herself. And then Rick is... I mean, ultimately, the one who gets the shit done. (laughs) Ultimately, the one that gets them on the plane and gets them out of there. But Rick is the one I I think that, like, we as an audience get a bit more of she wants him, she lusts after him, and then she just kind of does what she's told. Yeah. She's like, make the decision for me. And that might just be 40s, you know, bleeding into it, or they didn't quite know how to convey that. But I don't think that it, it, I don't think that it's lost. I agree with you that I think that her character is the weakest character, but in the 1940s starlet kind of way. Like, I can see in the writing, which if we tried to do this movie again, Madonna turns out tried to do that. That's one of the facts. She wanted to play uh, Ilsa and wanted to remake Casablanca and went to everybody and they all said, go fuck yourself, Madonna. <laughs> You're not remaking Casablanca. That's funny. <laughs> but like in an updated version, I think we see more of a love lust between her husband and her old flame and him more justified in his rage towards Laszlo and I, I maybe kick the emotions up a step to make the film hold up but I, I don't know I just, I, I don't, and yeah it was the 40s I just always think it's weird to see um, female characters in older movies depicted as strong in every way except for their individuality um, mm-hmm. like her wardrobe's very strong. She always looks very put together. She always looks very pretty. Um, 
I don't feel like they exploited her. Like I don't no, feel like they I don't were mean like, like get your tits out and walk out in the room. <laughs> no, I don't mean like sexualized. I just mean she she looks like when you see her on screen, like a commanding mm-hmm. presence. Looks like high society. Looks like she's got her shit together. And then, you know, in some scenes with um, characters from older movies like that, where they're kind of more well to do or whatever, you get these people that have like when they're voicing their wants or their desires, like strong opinions but yeah. then like they don't get shit done they don't do anything like they, <laughs> they don't have like a will of their own to move the story at all yeah which is kind of a bummer because it's like ah oh, like she looks like someone who'd go get shit done <laughs> well and, and I'm, I'm gonna save that i might write that down as a topic for our next episode as women in film and we could really dive into like when they're truly powerful because what i want to compare that to is um because the Godfather, uh, Godfather Two, the relationship between Michael Connie, his sister, um, who he kills Carlo at the end of one, so Connie is a widow now, and she's very angry at Michael, and Kay, who is kind of like if you think of um, like chaotic, you think Connie, and then Kay is the more neutral version of that conflict square. Mm-hmm as regards to him with the women in the family, both of those women are incredibly strong. And maybe that is a different type of change. Like they have their opinions. They act on those opinions. They're not, I I can see what you're saying Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to Ilsa is she just like, well, I want this, but she never has direct action to do this. When Rick says, shut up, sit down, she shuts up and sits down. Yeah. She ultimately does what she's told. Um, Love story aside, uh, there's other conflict in this movie. Obviously, we have the (laughs) German occupation, which is the major conflict. All these refugees trying to escape basically being killed killed and supreme rulers. I didn't know that we knew about the concentration camps in 1943. I didn't think that we found out about the concentration camps until after the war. Just a weird, like, aside. I didn't realize that... Like the, I, I thought that as the Allies were taking back France, we found them. We found them. <laughs> like I didn't realize that in '43 we even knew about them. Like we might have thought of them as like what America did to the Japanese um, here at home, as far as internment camps. But I didn't think that we knew about the pain of the concentration camps. Honestly, I've never really thought. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I was watching it, and I was like, we knew about the concentration camps in 1943, and we didn't nuke Berlin? What the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> um, I, I do, speaking of what we did to the Japanese, though, I do think, for me, in 2021, an interesting conflict in this movie is what we visually see of Casablanca versus this unknown promise of going to America Mm -hmm. for what they hope is a better life. Um, And I find it incredibly interesting that this is a movie that was made in Hollywood predominantly on stages. The only time they left the stage was to go to the airport to get that Mm -hmm. shot of the light circling. Um, They made this movie look kind of like it was like a desert paradise almost. Like it's a quirky little town. It doesn't look like really rich people live here. But 
It looks like the people that live here are free. Yeah, and have yeah. relatively good lives. Like, of course, the Germans kind of filtering in is like this impending, oh no, danger is coming. Mm-hmm. It's getting worse. It's getting closer to us. So you do kind of have that sense of urgency to leave. And, you know, I'm sure most refugees that were fleeing at that time would have preferred to have just stayed in their own home and not had <laughs> Germans overrunning their land. But, um, I, yeah, I think it's an interesting depiction for Americans to build this entire fake world and make it seem almost like its own little paradise. Like, I know there's a joke about how uh, Rick went there for his health for the water, and he's like, we're in the (laughs) desert, there's no water here. But it almost looks like a place that'd be, like, next to an oasis. Yeah. Like, it looks like a place you might go to for a vacation. Well, he runs the watering hole. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it does kind of vaguely look like a place that's like, oh, that might be fun to vacation there, and... They're all going to America, and in the reality of the time, uh, and even now to some extent, immigrants weren't particularly welcomed well, or treated well. That's one of the questions I had for you. Do you think that's one of the reasons why the film holds up? Because when I view their trying to flee, um, I, I think of the ice camps, like coming in from Mexico, like the our former carrot top <laughs> like I, I i think of those types of internments and if you're like yeah man life's good here in honduras until the cartel came in and started whooping our fucking asses so we got the fuck out of there and we just need a plane to lisbon you know like do you think it holds up because post-world war ii it feels like there's always somebody fleeing some situation like it's such a human post-World War II movie. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, absolutely. I, There's things that we can still relate to from 1943. I would definitely say there are things we do here that are terrible that maybe really honestly, I guess if you're having to pick one demon over the other, aren't as terrible as third world countries where yeah. people are being beheaded and mutilated and all these crazy things because... You know, I guess living in a small cage and not having much freedom probably mm-hmm. in relation to that doesn't seem as bad. So, like, I, I get the idea that there is still this promise of I can go there and I can make a life for myself. For me, I honestly watched it and was like, oh, man, that's sad because it's not going to be that great when you get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, ironically, not to make comparisons to other Al Pacino movies yet again, um, I think that uh, Scarface in its opening sequence does a great job of what if you get the plane to America? <laughs> except it's a boat Mm -hmm. and uh it's not what you were told it was you have a base understanding of what our system is and you can get used and abused by that system Mm -hmm. they tried to make a sequel did you see that they tried to make a sequel where he made it off to uh brazzerville or wherever they say they're going at the very end they wanted to do rick's story after he arrives in this um French with Bogart, yeah, they wanted to do an immediate sequel because Casablanca did semi okay, <laughs> and uh, they were basically like, "No, leave it alone. <laughs> we don't know. We're not. Yeah. We're not Hollywooding this with a sequel where no. he tries to make a life for himself in this French, you know, no. <laughs> that expat been silly. society." <laughs> Yeah, no, that would have been silly. But, I mean, that's because we never really find out why Rick can't go back to America. Maybe Rick did something bad. But I I feel like that, yeah, to me, like, I was watching it from the viewpoint of today and being like, oh, like, 
you know, sometimes America's not that great either. And <laughs> Well, I, I like that they left his past really closed off. Did, did we talk about the concept of Ghost on the last episode, mm-hmm. or was that a conversation I just had with you the other No, we night? had it on the show. Okay. Um, another great demonstration of that. We really don't know why he won't just go the fuck back home. Like, we don't know if he deserted from the military. We don't know if he deserted from the military. Why is he fighting in other wars? Has he been deemed a... And I did think it was interesting, because to me it felt like they were ignoring their own rules a bit, that they made the implication that if Rick had the papers to Lisbon, he could make it back to America. And it's like, he's not normally allowed back in America, but... Given his current situation, he might run the risk. Yeah, like, it's like, what, he's going to sneak back in as a refugee himself? Like, is he going to tell mm. him his name's different? Like, I was like, how, how would that work out if he can't <laughs> go back? Yeah. Um, so, well, they, yeah. They took a couple of, uh, uh, what do you call them, where you don't... Liberties. liberties. They took a couple of liberties uh, with the actual situation in North Africa at the time. So... <laughs> But yeah, I, I don't like the know. guy that he says signed the papers had at the point that the film was released already basically been kicked out of office, and they're like, "Yeah, those papers wouldn't have done Rick any good," and they wound up never using those papers. <laughs> um, very. Is that the plane? To Lisbon. To Lisbon. From Montana. That's how long of a flight is that? I don't know. I don't even know where it is. <laughs> yeah, I thought you said it was near Spain. I think it's in Portugal. <laughs> Um, but I uh, very beautifully done movie honestly I would we were talking about like the dynamics of the shadows and Psycho I would say it's a prettier film than Psycho can I point out like one particular scene that I thought was fucking mind blowing Mm -hmm. the safe when when he's got the dude behind him I can't remember who the dude is but is it Strauss not Strauss it's uh, uh, Green, Green Street Renault's Renault, um, when he's got the dude and he's talking to him and then Humphrey steps off screen and we get to see Humphrey's shadow smoking a cigarette on the wall there and they're continuing to have the conversation. He's literally having a conversation with the darker side of that character. So you don't get to see Humphrey actually acting out the scene. You get this beautiful shadow on the wall, and then he steps back in, and he says something poignant, and then he steps back out of shot, and you get that silhouette again that's the darker part of that personality of Rick. Mind-blowing. I was thinking, I mean, the shot was really pretty. I totally noticed the shadow, but I was thinking the whole time, he trusts that dude enough to open his safe in front of him? He might be back there jotting down the numbers. It's like 13, 24, 17, 25. (laughs) 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 I'm getting the fuck out of Casablanca. He legit pulled like 20,000 out or something while he was doing it. It's like, so he's got more in there. (laughs) Only got to open that safe in front of that dude. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, really, really pretty... Pretty. <laughs> I have used that pretty a lot. shot. <laughs> uh, pretty film. No, and I think to some extent, I think the old Hollywood system is a credit to that because the people working on this movie didn't think this movie was going to be any good. Yeah. And the people working on this movie were still like top of their profession, had been doing this nonstop. Like, oh, we crank out movies for the studio. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's curious to think about. I mean, I, I think films have come a long way 
since the 40s, obviously. No shit. <laughs> the talkies were like 15 years ahead of this movie. <laughs> and there are incredibly gifted filmmakers out there, but I... I don't know. I, cause I think all the Netflix documentaries we've been watching are kind of maybe in that vein. I know the same people aren't making these documentaries over and over, but I'm assuming... Netflix, to some extent, must have an expectation. (laughs) So it's sort of like cranking out these movies the way that old film studios used to. And I, I wonder if there's something to that, like having these people that like constantly work and constantly work at perfecting their profession, and you know, don't like gawk at headline or (laughs) deadlines or whatever. They're just like, oh, like yeah. We'll get it done. This is what we do. Is this an example of, and we've talked about it personally all the time, where I think that there's like a 30 to 40 year stretch where patterns start coming back and you can trace them. And it's one of my bipolar theories that I'm obsessed with. But is this one of those, it became so well oiled that they dropped Casablanca without even knowing it? <laughs> they're like, no, that's just what I do on a typical Thursday. I'm just that great. And then those people slowly start retiring off their Casablanca money, and now we need to build a new well-oiled machine, and then it blows up, and then we get the Godfather, and then it dies, and then 20 years later we get Scarface, and, and then I don't, it dies. <laughs> I don't think realistically um, we'll ever go back to the, the way things were back then because... For the actors especially, um, having the contracts were very limiting. You couldn't take other projects working for other studios. You had to take projects your studio wanted you to take, even if you didn't want to take them. Yeah, it's like writers to this day. If you're signed on to Penguin, you write for Penguin for your next five books, and you better come up with five books. (laughs) So I, I, I get the downside to that, but I, I have... A bit of respect for this notion of, like, it's not the waitress who's also trying to be an actress. It's people that are working and working at perfecting it. And even if they don't necessarily think the project's going to go anywhere, they're like, well, we're going to do our damnedest to make sure it at least looks good, you know? So, I don't know. I wasn't alive in the 40s, so I can't really be that nostalgic. But there's a bit of me that's a bit nostalgic for this concept of when it was a new medium and people were really giving it all they had to give because they wanted it to, (laughs) um, I don't know, like mean something. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know that this movie would have been the same if it was made now, you know, if it was, yeah. Just an idea somebody pitched. (laughs) It was just an idea somebody pitched, and they're like, "Yeah, that's not. We could make that. I guess you know, it might do all right." I don't think it would have been the movie that it is. Yeah, I think. I think it was successful in large part because this was what these people did. This was their livelihood. This was their career, and this meant something to them. Yeah, you got Humphrey like twenty years into his thing. He's like, I'm sick of playing gangsters, see? (laughs) I wanna tell that kid. Um, I I was pointing at the microphone because I was like, brand new medium, and we're talking about (laughs) Casablanca. Maybe this will take off and people will pay us millions and I can get punched in the face with some handcuffs. I can punch you right now. I'm down. (laughs) Let me break this bottle. (laughs) I'm not getting beaten to death with a knockoff margarita. (laughs) (laughs) I did knock off margarita first because it's not that good. 
Um, I wouldn't want to go out that way either. Um, I'm surprised it was shot all on set. Like, I there's a lot of credit. Do you to know the why that designers. was done? Probably because it was cheaper. It was World War Two, so. California had limited lighting, so they had a light curfew, so that the Japanese and the in, in they were terrified that the Japanese were going to fly their, um, or they were going to row, row, row their boats like all the way up to the international waterline, and then just start launching planes to bomb Los Angeles. So all of Hollywood had a curfew. Most of the country had a curfew, but especially the coast states. And so they they couldn't film outside at night, so they needed to do them inside of the buildings. And I love that you can't even tell the fucking difference. No, like the whole thing. Like, I would believe that that was a real place they, like, flew their crew out to and Mm -hmm. shot it at. Um, And I I don't know that I noticed, really. I don't know if we ever really see the sky all that often. No, never. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that is interesting. But I felt like we were, like, outside in the desert and like there's <laughs> I said like an oasis nearby and yeah, I'm like oh all somebody's riding by those with little, a camel they got the little red hats <laughs> <laughs> um really really pretty lighting uh, probably one of my overall as a whole movie favorite lit movies we've watched yeah. together well after the psycho episode where you were talking about the importance of lighting to create depth this one does it perfectly because we get a lot of depth when we're inside of the bars but then that depth is taking a, taken away from us in the fog in the final sequence so all of a sudden humphrey's like right on top of you and we're very immediate you know, our pacing is going. <laughs> so, like, the use of fog, the use of this quote-unquote daylight versus nightlight. And I like, too, the constant reappearance of the searchlight that's supposed to be, like, the airport tower or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like a like a character itself in the movie. Like, it's used a lot of the time to kind of, like, heighten the drama of whatever moment. Like, oh, his wife's up in Rick's bedroom. because yeah, it feels like a Nazi jail light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I didn't notice. That was something they were talking about in the behind-the-scenes, too, speaking of jails. Um, the props and, like, the different pieces that they use to try to, like, simulate jail bars. Like, I noticed... Yeah, the, all the blinds that create these really harsh black and whites. Yeah. Like, I noticed the plants casting, like, shadows and stuff on the wall, but I, I didn't really notice, like, the intention behind that. And I, I think... I don't know. It's interesting to see people like that that are, like, at the height of their career, like, how intricate the details get. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I didn't even notice that. And that was, like, a purposeful choice. Or apparently, which it's black and white, so you can only tell so much, apparently the color and the styling of each character's wardrobe stayed consistent so that they would look different from each other. Yeah, and that's what I was asking you about, I think, with the Psycho episode, is, like, you can almost start to see the greens and the blues after a while. Like, you know that they're not actually there, but I know the color of the dress. I know (laughs) If you were going to ask me, I could have sworn that it was colorized. (laughs) Fun fact, they did colorize it, I believe, in the 80s. Casablanca? Yeah, and uh, everybody hated it. Yeah, I don't think they were like, like it. <laughs> they were like, that looks cheap. It fucking well, it doesn't work. <laughs> and that's I think part of the reason, like I don't like the idea. I haven't seen it, but I don't like the idea of the shot for shot remake of Psycho mm-hmm. um, in color. Because granted, if they literally reshot it and they shot it intentionally in color, it's probably going to be lit uh, more appropriately to color. But like I like 
we were talking about before with the Psycho episode, feel like lighting is different and has to be more intentional for black and white. Yeah, so the shots um, Hitchcock made, he wouldn't make if he had Yeah, color. and the, the shots are going to be, like, emphasized to up the drama of the actual scene. And, like, I feel like you take all of that stuff into account whenever you're doing, like, a movie on digital or on film or in color or in black and white or in 3D or whatever. <laughs> like, those are things you take into account. So to literally just completely redo it in color to me is like, well, it's not the same movie then, though, you yeah. know? you're taking it away. It's like yeah. if you tried to shoot Coppola's version of The Godfather, just so I can bring it up three times in one episode, if you tried to throw that in black and white, you know, like, it's going to be way too fucking dark. Like, mm. it's not going to make sense. Which apparently some of the scenes were already anyway. <laughs> that yeah, was the thing yeah. people complained about. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I because the lighting in this, which they said specifically they were going for the film noir style and... Um, you know, kind of that heightened drama of darks and mm-hmm. lights, and apparently in the scenes where Rick and Ilsa were being intimate, they purposely lit it less, which I didn't notice when we were watching it, mm-hmm. so that's an interesting fact. Well, the only place that it, it stands out is when he's drinking in the bar and she comes through the door and it's, like, really bright behind her and all that empty space in between them is, like, pure black. Well, they do have that scene where they're sitting on the couch together because they were talking about it in the special features while we were watching it, and they both sit back into the couch and their faces are in shadow. Like, you can see mm-hmm. them. But their faces are in shadow, and that's not, like, usual. Like, you would normally light at least one side of the face or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting thought process <laughs> is we're going to visually give them some privacy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. If we're going to give them this feeling of sex without actually introducing. Apparently that was yeah. something they got in trouble for, too. Like, the implication that Rick and Ilsa had had sex. Oh, my God. Camera movement, too. Apparently, this was not a thing that happened in the studio day because you had those giant cameras on those yeah. giant rigs, and they were not particularly mobile because they weighed like hand cranked. Yeah, <laughs> they weighed a lot. Um, this was, I guess, one of the first movies that incorporated so much movement into it. It's definitely not as God bless that editor <laughs> slicing shit with a razor blade. It's like, can we quit moving around the fucking room? Can we just give me an easy cut? <laughs> it's definitely not as fluid as modern day films are because cameras are lighter now and we have stabilizers and stuff. But uh, yeah, a lot of respect for that. Like trying to reinvent, like what's basically. Yeah. A well-oiled machine. Pull it off the shoulder. Ironically, use something made for the theater, which is something I caught on in the film that I'll get to in just a second, but pull it off the stage. Take all the drama of a stage performance and pull it off the stage. And where I noticed it the most was in the music. Like, there's these definite act cuts that are musical scenes where in if you were to see it on the stage people in the background would be moving shit around and creating the next set. The curtain would be closed. People would be singing. I kind of missed that stuff. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, that's what the music does for this movie. It gives us a beginning, a middle, and end. Sam becomes the, all right, we're moving next. Let's move some shit in the background. Let's bring in different actors, kick out other actors, reline stage left, right, bring the curtain back up. Boom, we're back in Rick's. <laughs> so they bring that element of classic theater to the stage. 
I I think because that was another thing they mentioned in the behind the scenes stuff. I think it's hilarious that they didn't like the song that Sam sings that <laughs> um, Rick and Ilsa is like their song. And they wanted to take it out, but they couldn't because a shot they had already put in the movie. <laughs> and so the composer then composed that song into the rest of the movie. Yeah. He's so like, it Fuck becomes your song, a I'll theme. make it better. <laughs> yeah. It becomes a theme again, like Godfather. Which I didn't even catch that. And <laughs> like I think that's cool just like how many different elements go into like evoking a mood in a movie, because it does feel um like it was I think they said an hour and a half and it does feel like it like goes by fairly quickly and it mm-hmm. like flows and it's kind of a seamless concept and you don't really realize why because so much is happening like a yeah. lot of different stories are being told like you see multiple refugees like in the midst of their own story of fleeing and it doesn't really ever feel like we're derailing mm-hmm. from the main story so but I, I saw a review from like when it came out where it was like it's better if you view it as a series of vignettes as opposed to one cohesive story but the through line is the Rick and Elsa well, it still feels cohesive. Like, I feel like they yeah. successfully interwove all these smaller... It's a book of short stories. <laughs> <laughs> like, all these smaller side stories, and I never at any point was like, what are our main characters doing right now? <laughs> you know, like, I never felt, like, lost or, like, confused on who was who or... I, I don't know. Like, it was... And I think the music, to some extent, helps with that. Like, it was, like, mm-hmm. this kind of flowing piece. Like, there was a moment that you pointed out where it was, like, a little you know, expository little towards on the end. The head. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> but um and there were moments that were a bit predictable too. I kept saying something was about to happen and I did not know that it was about to happen. Yeah, and I was sitting here going, she's watched this more than once. But <laughs> <laughs> kept being like, I haven't seen this, you're ruining it. I was like, I didn't know that was gonna happen. I was like, it just felt right. <laughs> so. I missed the first pickpocket. As a 2021 viewer, I'm, the first oh. time that the pickpocket hit, you just started laughing. You're like, he just stole the papers. And I was like, I completely missed that. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was obvious. <laughs> he was like leaning all over him like, oh, you got to watch out. Dangerous people. The Germans are coming. I was yeah. like, he is touching him way too much. But I started watching that character a lot more like intuitively after you pointed out that he stole it and I missed the first one. I was like, I caught the other two times <laughs> that he does it in the film. But it's, it's like just... a fun thing with... Like, it, it, again, creates a layer underneath the dialogue where there's an action, even if it's like a little Oliver Twisty. You know? Well, it's like, <laughs> it gives the beneath. city life. It's like Rick and Ilsa and Laszlo and Renault yeah. aren't the only living people here. Like, there's a whole culture of other people with other stories. And, yeah, that point where he bumps into the dude that works for Rick and, mm-hmm. like, the dude that knows him and he immediately pats himself down to make sure <laughs> it's hilarious because it's like, oh, I know you. You're shifty. It's like you're a regular around this bastard. You ain't getting me again. Do you have any final thoughts on this, sweetheart? Because I've got to go make you dinner. No, <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I will forever, as a woman, be a little sad to see women not being represented i think in the best light um it's the question i always ask you i just felt (laughs) like we had that one earlier (laughs) (laughs) but no i'm I'm well done movie um you know the the male roles are a bit old hollywood male roles but it's still fun like it Mm -hmm. feels i don't know like i feel like for me the old school movie where you kind of had the male character like adventuring and getting shit done was like the indiana jones movies and i don't know this kind of felt like 
that kind of fun adventure, but for people that were alive in the 40s and with much more serious topics. Yeah, yeah. But I think Indiana does fight the Nazis. So. <laughs> he did. He, he fucked them up. Pretty goddamn well. I, I, I am really excited to watch a lot more old films. Like Birth of a Nation? No, I'm just kidding. No, not, not Birth of a Nation. <laughs> uh, Franklin Madeira, I don't give a damn. <laughs> I liked, I think. I didn't love it, but I did see Singing in the Rain. I would love to do. Too, and I think I, I think I liked it okay. I'd love to do Singing in the Rain. Like, I want to see more of these older films that were made by people who read novels. Like, people who I think had a better grasp of story, but not as good of a, or maybe not the equipment probably the way for filmmaking like they didn't have all the tools we have now to make these beautiful movies but the story was just everything you know the dialogue was everything because you had to hold the audience in that room so I'm excited going forward to see more things what was the one that we wanted to watch Princess Bride no oh um, Breakfast at Tiffany's no um Dr. Strangelove. Oh, um, no, that's the one you want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Stanley Kubrick having color and going, fuck it, I'm doing it in black and white. <laughs> Just to prove that I'm better at that, too. <laughs> I will watch it with you. It's awesome. That's the one you want to watch. <laughs> it's awesome. There's one dude who plays three separate characters. It's incredible. Mind fear. All right. <laughs> it's a line from the movie. It's not me praising Hitler. I love you, sweetheart. I love you. And I love you guys. I'm going to go make my beautiful wife some beautiful wings and rings. And we're going to put the episode you just heard up. It's going to be awesome. I wish I could remember the song from Casablanca right now, but here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> love you. Love you.